Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection, COVID-19 Crisis Edition. In this monthly podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this month, we bring you the second episode of the special mini-series on social protection for informal workers in the context of the COVID-19 global pandemic. This global health crisis has brought many countries, cities and states to a halt as authorities try to slow down the spread and flatten the curve. This unprecedented lockdown has also deep social and economic consequences and impact the lives of billions of workers. And in this second episode of the mini-series, we will hear the concrete impact on the lives of informal workers in cities around the world with brief updates from the ground from WeGo team members who work closely with informal workers. We also bring the account from two workers' leaders themselves on how the lockdown is affecting their lives and those of their comrades. I talked to 11 people from nine cities around the world, from Delhi, India, to Portland, United States, passing through Dakar, Johannesburg, Accra, Belo Horizonte, Bogota, Buenos Aires, and Mexico City. We'll hear how local and national governments are responding to the crisis to protecting from workers' health and livelihoods as cities try to face a global crisis. We will learn how workers are organizing to pressure authorities, but also how some of them are taking direct actions to support vulnerable workers through these difficult times. Without further ado, let's hear this round of updates from the ground with the WeGo team members and workers' leaders. Thank you all for joining our podcast this month for this round of updates from the ground to understand the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on informal workers in the cities. Let's start the round of updates with you, Tania Espinosa, talking from Mexico City. Tania, what's the situation in Mexico City? Uh, is the city in lockdown at the moment and how are informal workers being affected? Tania, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Cyrus. So in the whole country, there have been 14,667 cases. Mexico City has the highest contagion rates and deaths. The Mexican government has been known during the pandemic for their permissive measures. We have only entered to phase three one week ago. We don't have a lockdown. We only have a call for voluntary confinement. No curfews, no fines for people on the streets, no use of police power for enforcement. And all non-essential activities are suspended until May 30th. And was there any measures undertaken by local or national state authorities to protect informed workers from this crisis? So there is a national campaign for social distancing, not only for workers, but for all the society. It is called Susana Distancia. It has also been extended until May 30, encouraging people to stay at home and avoid 
direct contact with others. And from this week onwards, in Mexico City, the use of face masks in public space is mandatory. Right. What about waste speakers? Are they still allowed to work? Yes. The waste speakers in Mexico City that are called voluntarios, that are the informal workers that work in the waste, within the waste management service, they are still working and they don't have equipment or any other measure to protect themselves. The Mexico City's government has published measures for the society to segregate the sanitary waste in order to avoid them to get infected, but there hasn't been massive campaign, so they have only tweeted about it, so the society is not aware about it. Well, thank you, Tani Espinosa, talking from Mexico City. Now let's go south and hear Carolina Palacio, who has updates from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Carolina, can you explain what were the government responses to protecting from workers' livelihood there? And do you believe that they were adequate and sufficient? Carolina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Cyrus. Okay, so the government here in Argentina is trying to be very different to the previous one that was a very neoliberal one. So the approach that they are having is that they are granting to every precarious work what is called IFE, Ingreso Familiar Extra de Emergencia, an emergency familiar income. So, and that is around 10,000 pesos, $200 at least. It is something that people is seeing it with good eyes and it's, uh, it's something that that it's interesting for all, for all the informal workers, especially. At the same time, the bureaucracy behind it, it's very difficult for, for them to really get, <laughs> get in fact, the, that cash grant. So we're having tremendous difficulties around how people that is not bankerized for them to be granted with this uh, emergency grant. So especially that and the full relief at the same time from the government, it's, it's good for us to be cope with the economical and health crisis. And still we have a public health system. So at one point we are kind of covered. Although, of course, we're having a lot of troubles with migrants without papers. As CETEP, we are asking for, for them to be able to be granted with it. Hopefully, this will get resolved, but at, one, but at this point, there is no proper response. The interesting part, is, interesting part is that the government is trying to do something about it, like for many, many of the workers of the informal economy, but at one point, there are some loopholes that are not, or black holes that are not getting into everyone. What kind of actions is CETEP doing to address to the shortcomings of the measures to protect informal workers? There is a lot of popular organization. There is in every popular neighborhood, in every visha, people is organizing themselves to make soup kitchens on a solidarity basis. There are communitarian cooking kitchens, granting people for them to come with their Tupperwares, for them to be filled with the food that is being cooked there. Many sorting centers from the waste pickers, since they are not working at their 100%, their kitchens are transformed into the, the soup kitchens for food relief for the people nearby. So CETEP, or TEP, now the new name, it's really organized by ask, asking the government for us to help us doing this solidarity 
uh, work among food relief and a lot of militancy that can access internet and many other uh, tools like computers and so on. We are all completely um, engaged trying for the people who has no access to internet and so on to be able to be granted of that emergency grant that I mentioned before, because you have to do it online. You know, it's like a, through a platform. So not all of them have that type of access. So we are uh, receiving all the information about it and trying to do it online and, and many others. So our militancy and all the many of the workers are completely engaged into trying to cope it uh, on, a, on a communitarian way. And at the same time, trying to see where are, you know, the, the black holes for the migrants and the penitentiary service. So we are very, you know, observant of the policies that the government is making and trying to make the popular economy workers do as much as possible on the, on the essential work we are doing. And that is needed by the society, you know. For example, you know, the, the peasants that are organized within UPEP, they are in the, what we call the green belts of the big metropolitan areas, you know, and they are growing our vegetables. A portion of their products is being donated to hospitals for food relief at the same time. Because, uh, you know, we have a public health system, but at the same time, we are very observant where are the scars of plenty of stuff, especially with the face masks and the, and the produce of, of vegetables, for example. Great. Thank you, Carolina Palacio, sharing updates from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Let's move on and hear what's going on in Bogota, Colombia, where Federico Parra, who works closely with waste speakers there, has more updates. Fede, how is the crisis affecting waste speakers' work in Bogota? Are they able to continue their work there? And was there any support from public authorities? Fede, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Well, the first ha that I have to say is uh, that we are in a quarantine that was in a restricted lockdown. And now we are in a process of opening the construction sector and the manufacturing sector. This quarantine perhaps could be until the end of May. In this uh, context, I have to say that the first worries that the we speakers had was in the possible provision of recycling. That's why they mobilized lobbying with national and municipal authorities, trying to demonstrate that recycling, the service that they provide, is an essential service. And this was the first game. The most important achievement was that the national, district, and municipal authorities formally included recycling and waste pickers as an essential service, as an essential providers. In practical terms, this means that they can go out and do their work even in times of quarantine. There are a lot of action that government has been developing, but I have to say that less of this arise on the hands of the waste pickers. That's why they push a lot to the governments to this acceptance of the condition of essential work. And there is another reason for that. That is that in our context, sadly, many private enterprises lobby it strongly for the right to collect all the waste, including the recyclables, under the argument of the dangerousness of the COVID. So the waste pickers recognize that if they quit the street, the risk is lost the achievement so far, means the recognition as a provider of services and the payment. And this conducts us to the second point, that is 
not only be in the streets, but be in an adequate, in a safe way. Because wake speakers, as you can imagine, are the most exposed to the virus, thank you to the lack of separation in the source practices. That is mixed with the fact that our health and care system is so weak. So wake speaker has, at least the organized wake speaker, has taken a self-protection measures. The first of that one was to make use of all these uh, personal protection items that they have in an inventory, gloves, face masks, uniforms, anti-fluid dress. The other was the access to water and to soap permanently in some warehouses, spreading disinfectant to the large bags of recyclable materials. Put on quarantine the materials means once you make the collection, those materials go to the collection center for at least four days without being in touch. But sadly, I have to recognize that these measures apply more or less to the 35% of the way speakers. Many unorganized way speakers do not have access to these elements or protection practices, and more of them are not in the streets. Right, Fede. Uh, one more thing. The, the national government has approved an emergency cash grant equivalent to $40 to some 3 million poor families. You mentioned this hasn't been reaching the way speakers. It's not easy to reach them because these measures of supplement income is not an income substitution. It's supplement income go to two million and a half vulnerable families. And the identification of these families is made through the system of selection of beneficiaries for social programs. And this tool left out many informal workers. They concentrate ourselves in some specific territories and some sector of vulnerable people. Sadly, not uh, uh, all the way speakers. The other issue with this uh, is that you need, as Carolina told us, to have access to bank services. It's not easy to reach that money. And as you can imagine, many poor and vulnerable people have not access to these services. Uh, I have to say that the government for elderly people has been doing a lot of other things and many way speakers over 70 years can access some subsidy for their program that it's 20 us dollars more than these 40 that you mentioned excellent thank you federico parra who talked to us from bogota colombia now let's hear one perspective on how informal workers are being affected in the global north with taylor cast howard who reports from portland oregon tyler what has been the impact of the lockdown on informal workers in Portland. Were there any government responses to protect these people? Taylor, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Cedars. Oregon is the state where I am, and we've been in a phase of mandatory social distancing for quite a while now. We were one of the early states to enforce this because we had some of the earliest cases of community spread of COVID. There have been, you know, there has been quite a lot of response all the way from the national level, emergency stimulus checks to what's called the CARES Act that's providing unemployment that filters down to the state level. And at that point, there's some determination as to whether or not informal workers like gig workers are included. Um, a lot of this is undetermined at this point. It hasn't been a very efficient 
response and most people don't have their stimulus checks yet um, and most of these benefits are really based on tax filing status so in terms of really informal workers like those workers that, that I work with waste pickers here are organized through an association called the ground score association you know these workers tend to not have tax filing status maybe they're at least through their work they're not necessarily filing taxes for that form of work um, and so they're not eligible through their work status they may be eligible if they receive social security and, and other types of benefits they may be receiving some type of support um, but otherwise they're oftentimes being missed if they haven't filed their taxes in recent years um, or if they're not citizens for example and so really I would say some of the best support for kind of filling the gaps in aid have been a lot of these community-led initiatives uh, mutual aid nonprofits with donors that have been really generous in flexibilizing their funding to allow people to kind of of change course and start supporting uh, with emergency response uh, coalitions, especially like you know homeless advocacy coalitions, and then either also on the way to the all the way down to the city level, the homeless urban camping reduction program, which is part of our city, has been really supportive in you know helping coalitions of organizations set up uh, emergency tent villages, for example, and also for waste pickers who have been uh, really impacted by this situation because the system that basically buys materials from workers has effectively been shut down because the state stopped enforcing the system that runs that. And so waste pickers by and large have had no place to sell their materials. So actually the, this homeless urban camping reduction program supported in the establishment of emergency bottle collection sites um, where we're actually buying materials from waste pickers um, at different points around the city to help kind of fill some gaps there. But I think really what all of this is highlighting is the need now going forward for cities, states, even on a national level to really invest in resilience building, especially among these more agile community organizations. You know, for a long time, our city has been saying, oh, we need to engage, you know, homeless advocacy organizations, for example, in disaster preparedness. But I think now is the time to really put that money forth and say, okay, now we're going to really invest in coalition building so that this can be done in a much smoother, more efficient way. Because I think the reality is that these national level support mechanisms, while they may eventually help people, they're just not very efficient in helping people urgently. Thank you, Taylor Cast-Talbot from Portland, Oregon. Now let's move a bit closer to home here in Brazil, where Sonia Diaz has been following the situation of waste pickers in Belo Horizonte. Sonia, is Belo Horizonte uh, in lockdown at the moment? What is the situation with solid waste management and its relation to the waste pickers? Sonia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, yes, we are in lockdown since 23rd of March. The city decided to suspend temporarily the collection of recyclables. Belo Horizonte has a well-established system for collection of household waste performed by municipal formal waste collectors. And the informal recyclers, or semi-formal, since they work in cooperatives, they perform the collection of recyclables through contracts with the city government to do door-to-door -door collection. And given the scientific uncertainty about COVID-19, 
the city decided to follow the recommendation of experts, especially sanitation and health experts, to interrupt the recycling collection, given the extreme vulnerability of waste pickers. We know by research carried out by the university, the federal university, that 56% of the members of our seven cooperatives belong to waste groups. So we decided that we had to buy ourselves some time and go on a lockdown and interrupt also the services of collection performed by way speakers swaps so that we could in this period of lockdown work out measures to improve safety at the workplaces at the municipal uh, level uh, we instituted together with the city through our municipal waste and citizenship forum two working groups on COVID-19. So the city officers and also cooperative representatives and NGOs like WIGO, INSE and other partners, we sit together to discuss measures regarding operational functioning of the segregation at source waste collection and also another working group for what we are calling it as the immediate uh, urgency relief measures. The city is responding by collaboratively designing a measures to tend to the workers' demand. Thank you very much, Sonia Diaz. Now I turn to Ana Carolina Ogando, who works with Sonia in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Ana, how is the crisis affecting waste pickers from organized cooperatives? and independent waste pickers in Belo Horizonte. And can you explain what were the government responses to protecting from workers' livelihood there? Ana, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Cyrus, for the invitation. I think this is a key issue to discuss in terms of how the situation has been affecting both cooperative members and non-organized waste pickers in the city of Belo Horizonte. As Sonia mentioned, with the measures to suspend selective waste collection, we've got approximately about 300 waste pickers from seven cooperatives that were directly affected by these measures. And while many of them decided to interrupt the work because they were concerned for their safety and protection, given how fast the crisis is moving and how much the information that we've been receiving as well has been changing on a day-to-day basis, they're very concerned about the return to work as well. What are the measures that will be needed to be taken for safety and protection and in terms of the infrastructure that they work with? But they're also very concerned about the administrative and fixed costs for maintaining the cooperatives. Because while they've received the 600 Highs, Brazilian highs cash grant for informal workers from the national government, we know this isn't enough to cover their household bills either. So what we're hearing is a lot of added stress at the household level and a lot of stress for the MBO leaders who are trying to organize solidarity campaigns both at the local and national levels to see what they can do to support the loss of, of livelihoods and earnings. And for the autonomous waste pickers, there's there's also a huge concern in terms of the risks that they're facing because we've heard about middlemen and deposits that have closed down or the buyback centers that have closed in the city of Belvedizonte. So a lot of the autonomous workers are storing some of the materials in their homes. And this obviously raises concerns 
about the risk of transmission on the recyclable materials itself. And we've also been hearing a lot of concerns about the prices of recyclables going down in this period. So this is an added concern for when the waste pickers do re resume their activities in the cooperatives. So it's it's been a real struggle and a stress factor for many of the leaders and the cooperative members who are dealing with these concerns, both at the household level and in the cooperatives as well. Thank you very much, Ana Carolina Ogando, sharing updates from Belo Horizonte, Brazil. And thank you, Sonia Dias, also talking from Belo Horizonte. Let's start this second round of updates with Lula Mamali, a street vendor leader from the South Africa Informal Trader Organization, talking from Johannesburg. Lulama, thank you so much for your time. Lulama, could you tell us more about how is the COVID-19 crisis affecting street vendors in Johannesburg? How is the situation in South Africa for street traders at the moment? It's bad. The situation is very bad in street. What we are we are affected by hunger. Our lives are a disaster on their own. Remember, we're for survivalists. We live from hand to mouth. Now that that we don't have the chance to take from hand to mouth, we've got nothing, nothing, nothing at all. And nobody cares about that. I've written a letter to the Department of Economic Development two weeks back. Thereafter, I called them because I didn't receive an answer. I didn't receive an answer to my email, a response to my email. I had to phone them. Nobody picked up my phone. We are on our own in the desert. So there's no help. We hear that there are food parcels. We see those food parcels on TV. We see people taking cues, applying for them. We do not even know how to start doing that. Nobody tells us anything. These counselors are pick and choose. They go for their comrades. So we thought as the sector that is recognized by the government, as the people who are in the data of the cities, we thought that we would be consulted as leaders to strategize how do those food parcels and whatever just get to our hands. But nothing. Even when I called them, they didn't even answer my phone. So we are on our own. The government is saying nothing about us. There's this department that is called the Department of Swan Business. That department has never, ever recognized us. When they talk about small businesses, they talk about SMMEs. They talk about spaza shops. Not informal traders. Not domestic. Nothing. We are not part of their plans. Traders are excluded from such processes. Now, South Africa is starting to ease its lockdown. How does that affect the street vendors in Johannesburg? Even now, they are saying informal traders can go back to work and sell vegetables. During this time, everybody had gone home to the homelands. We are at villages. Now that we are at, we're not far, we are far from Johannesburg, nobody is telling us how to organize ourselves because there's no transport. They talk about people who are working. They can be called by their employers to come back, be given permits to come back. But Department of Economic Development is not even contacting us with what do we need in order to come back. We are always excluded in all processes. I am a worker on my own. I'm working for myself. Nobody's saying anything how do traders come back because nobody employs them. What about government support? South Africa has recently approved an emergency cash grant program for the poor. Is this reaching informal workers? 
have street vendors had access to the information about how to apply? Um, are they eligible at all? As I'm talking with you, I've got a problem of calling every board who is an informal trader, giving them WhatsApps, informing them, giving them this address that they have to write to for to get this 350 grand. Nobody cares how, how do we contact our members. And I'm talking about plus minus 2,000 people here to consult, to give their people the information. How do they get into being included in this 350 grand? That's our situation. Thank you so much, Lula Mamali, for your information about how street vendors in Johannesburg, South Africa, are being deeply affected during this period. Now we turn to Accra, Ghana, to hear updates from Dorcas and Sa. Dorcas, what can you tell us about what's going on in Accra? Is the city in lockdown at the moment? And how are informal workers being affected? What kind of measures government has undertaken to protect informal workers? Dorcas, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Cyrus. So Accra or Ghana is not in lockdown. We were in partial lockdown, um, but it was lifted. We were on partial for Accra and Kumasi from the 18th of March for three weeks. And this was a partial lockdown. So presently, we are no longer in the lockdown. But Before or during the lockdown, what happened particularly with informal workers was that the essential commodities, so if you sell foodstuffs, you were categorized as essential worker and that you were able to go and work. So though you had security barriers all over the place, when you reached a security barrier and you told them you were a trader selling foodstuffs of whatever kind, then you will be allowed to go to the market. They wouldn't have any form of verification. So that allowed a bit of how difficult the implementation of the partial lockdown was because it was quite difficult to ascertain who the essential worker was. Other directives like social distancing was very, very difficult to be implemented in the market. I.e., if you know a typical market in Accra, it's very choked, right? And everybody has a place where they sell. And if you are ensuring social distancing, do you get my point? The second thing was before the lockdown, there was a mad rush for essentials by consumers. So within a very short period, when we got to know that the government was giving us two, three days to prepare for the lockdown, everybody rushed out to go and get food or whatever essentials they needed. Now, during the lockdown, the workers were allowed to go to work, but there were no buyers because then everybody else was on lockdown and people hoarded food in their homes. For the next two weeks, people had food in their homes. So consumers were not going. And it was very critical for sellers of perishable goods because then tomato sellers were losing. The tomatoes were going bad, but there were no buyers and there was nothing they could do. There were no storage facilities. The other thing is we have different levels of informal workers, particularly the Kaya years. They gain daily wage. So if there are no people in the markets buying, then the headquarter will also not get work to do. 
you know. So it was quite dire for particularly different levels of the informal workers. Those who were, who were able to go to work could not sell because there were no buyers. Those who had perishable goods were losing their perishable goods and they were losing their capital. But in the directives that the government gave, there were no explicit provisions for these losses that the informal workers were going to have. The government came out very clear that they were not going to provide cash grants. What they did was actually provide food. So they would cook and go out there and distribute. The distribution channels were very, very bad. And that even risked a lot of lives because people were rushing for the food. So there was no respect for social distancing or any other thing. You know, so in the implementation of the directives, we went against what we were running away from. So I'm very sure people would have contracted COVID by the numbers that we see now, even by the distribution channels of the food that the government used. It could even risk somebody's life of getting COVID. So, so far, after the lockdown, things have gotten quiet. Uh, we haven't heard the government continuing on their provisions. But generally for the country, the president announced that three months of water supplies will be free. Nobody's going to pay water for three months. For electricity, for the vulnerable informal workers, it's, it's going to be free for some level, low-level uh, vulnerable people. So basically, these are the tangible, immediate measures they are putting in. In a nutshell, this is the state in Accra as we speak. Thank you, Dorcas, talking from Accra, Ghana. Also from Accra, we will hear Anas Hilly, an informal worker leader who works in market in the capital of Ghana. Anas, how is the lockdown that has been lifted now has impacted your livelihood? And what are the perspectives for the near future for workers? What are the demands that workers are pushing in order to protect their, their health and work? Anas, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Generally, workers are hoping that with the lifting up of the band in Accra, as you can see, the government has also introduced some measures to the informal workers to observe the social distance in the various markets. What's the challenge is that most informal workers have exhausted their um, working capital uh, during the lockdown, making it very difficult for them to come back to business. So they are pushing that the government should do something, giving out soft loans to the informal workers. Uh, these are people who normally don't get loans from the bank. And before the lockdown, some of them have also taken up loans from microfinance institutions, and due to that, they are being harassed uh, since the lockdown has been lifted on them, and they have no other way of paying back this loan. So they are demanding that the government should see what best they can to I mean, talk to these financial institutions so that they can have enough time to prepare themselves and then pay back repay by the loans that they've contracted. Uh, having said that, we in the informal sector, as Doka said earlier on, even prior to the lockdown, women with children were affected mostly because schools were closed and they could not leave their children at home and come and do their business. So they were staying home 
even proud to be locked down, taking care of their children. So women were basically affected most in this uh, epidemic. Moving forward, what kind of protective measures are workers demanding in order to be safe in this post-lockdown stage? What kind of support local and national authorities are providing in this regard? Well, currently what the city um, authorities are doing is they are only um, providing technical advice to informal workers. Nothing like redistribution of safety items are being given to the informal workers. Having said that, you can see that Accra, the markets are very cheap. And in the near future, we think that the government should look into this so that uh, in building up markets, we could have enough space to accommodate the informal workers. Thank you very much, Anas Hili, a market vendor leader from Accra. Let's move on and hear what's going on in Delhi, India, where Shalini Sina has updates. Shalini, how is the crisis affecting former workers' livelihoods there? We hear that there was a very tough lockdown. Is is still is this still going on? Are the workers able to continue their work down there? Was was there any support from public authorities to comply with the physical isolation? Shalini, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Cyrus. Delhi, as you know, imposed, in fact, India imposed a very tough lockdown with only two hours notice. It was announced two hours later, the lockdown started. And the worst sufferers of this lockdown were the informal workers and the migrant workers. So what happened was that most everybody lost their livelihood or showed a decline in their income and earnings. Let me give you a few examples. The domestic workers suddenly that next morning were not allowed into the employer's home because these were gated communities which had been closed. So they could not come in. This was towards the end of the month, but not the end of the month. So they had been paid. So they lost livelihood. Waste pickers who would go on the streets and collect waste suddenly were not allowed. They were asked to stay in. So they had no income. If they had sorted waste, which they could have sold and got some income, the shops were closed. So they could not sell it. The street vendors were in the initial period not at all allowed. But then subsequently some food vendors, particularly those selling vegetables, definitely not those selling cooked food, were allowed. But only those who had ID cards. And you know, we are in the process of implementing a Street Vendors Act. So not many vendors have any kind of identification card. Women street vendors completely could not come out. They lost their livelihood. Absolutely. Construction workers, the construction work was stopped. They are, they are daily wages. Uh, they earn more wages daily. From next day onwards, they had no wages. So all the sectors saw a loss of work. Of course, there was variance even within the sectors. So uh, domestic workers who were living, who lived in with their employers, continued to live in. But then, then their workload became too much because they, uh, the family was at home, the children were at home, and there were all these restrictions about hygiene. Also, they were exposed to the infection themselves living with the family. They had no days off because they could not go out. 
Similarly, some waste pickers who worked with resident welfare associations continued to work and had some work, but many lost work. Street vendors, I've already explained, some street vendors were able to do work. So there was a lot, uh, a lot of loss of livelihood and reduction in income for many, many people. One of the reasons was also that, you know, the people were asked to stay at home and there was a very strict and sometimes traumatic uh, interventions by police, which would not allow people to come out on the road or come out of the areas and slums in which they were. So within two days, within two days, a large number of people had no food. And these are the people who earn from day to day. So if they earn in the evening, then they eat at night. If they were not earning, they were not eating. Starvation and hunger became a real issue. Many workers started walking back home. There were several reasons for it. One was that there was no work, there was no income. Then many of them lived in rented apartments. So the fear of this huge rent that they had to pay and which they could not afford because they had no work. And third was just the psychological fear of this disease. They wanted to, they were migrants. They did not belong to the city. They wanted to go back to where their families were. So what we saw and what the media all over the world has described was a complete humanitarian crisis. So it became absolutely impossible to handle this crisis. This was in the beginning. In terms of the relief that the state provided, there was some relief to some sectors. So the construction workers who were registered in a board were given certain amount of money, as were some rickshaw pullers and uh, other workers. Women have been completely absent in this relief provision, barring a small amount of money, which was transferred to women who had bank accounts. Now, not a lot of women are included in the digital world in India. And there was a provision to give extra ration or food to the poor. The, the Delhi government, this was all done by the state. The Delhi government went out of its way and started also providing community kitchens and home uh, shelter for the homeless, where many migrant workers also went. The civil society really stepped up and started feeding the poor. And there were many, many, many community kitchens with huge lines and so physical distancing being maintained, but a lot of people waiting to eat at these community centers. The lockdown continues. It's more than a month. Many sectors have not revived. The governments have been asking the construction industry particularly and the resident welfare associations to pay the construction workers daily wages and the domestic workers respectively, but they've just been making requests and there is no evidence to show that those are being compiled. We don't know how it's going to be after the lockdown is lifted. What will happen, I think, slowly is some economic activity will have to be allowed. And in some parts of India, they have been allowed, but not in Delhi. So the informal workers in Delhi really is in a very bad shape with no livelihood and completely dependent on charity and doling out to feed themselves. This kind of poverty and deprivation, you know, buying the soap and buying water to wash your hands is actually a financial decision. And sometimes it is almost as difficult as buying a packet of milk or buying a bar of soap. So this is what is happening in Delhi. What about dialogue channels? How have workers been 
doing to voice their demands and to be heard by authorities? See, in our work, what we do in Delhi is also promote collaborative forums and platforms sectorally. The one that we have is called the Delhi Roundtable, which is a platform for a collective of the waste picker organizations. So as a part of that, we have written to the chief minister, we have written to the senior authorities, highlighting the plight of the workers and asking for some kind of cash transfer to the waste pickers, just like it was done for the construction workers. We are also part of another platform, Focal City Delhi is a part of another platform, which looks at urban poor. And there we have been again sending petitions about the plight of street vendors and the plight of urban poor to the government. But yes, we have been doing petitions and writing to the government and highlighting the issues of different sectors of workers that we work with in Delhi. Excellent. Thank you very much, Shalini Sina, for your very thorough account. Shalini, talk to us about how the crisis is affecting former workers from Delhi, India. Now we move on to hear updates from Adama Sumare from Dakar, Senegal. Adama, how is the crisis affecting farm workers in the car? Uh, what has changed for them? And were they able to continue their work? Was there any support from public authorities? And what are workers doing to advance their demands? Adama, welcome to our podcast. Merci, Sirius. Au Sénégal, quand la pandémie a signalé, le gouvernement n'a pas attendu comme dans d'autres pays. Donc, il y a eu des décisions très fortes qui ont été prises. Il y a un confinement déjà qui est là de, de 20 heures à, à 6 heures. Et il n'y a pas un confinement total. Parce que les autorités sont conscientes que presque plus de la moitié des Sénégalais se réveillent pour aller trouver leur, leur survie quotidienne, leurs dépenses quotidiennes pour survivre, maintenir leur foyer. Les travailleurs avec qui nous sommes... Nous, nous appuyons dans, dans la ville de Dakar, sont affectés parce que le, les autorités ont interdit tous les rassemblements, ont essayé aussi d'enlever tout ce qui est sur, au niveau de l'espace public et de fermer aussi tout ce qui peut favoriser un rassemblement. C'est pourquoi nos travailleurs informels, les marchands ambulants, les vendeuses marchandes de marché, Mais bref, c'est dire que la plupart des travailleuses ont perdu leur place, leur espace de travail. Et c'est dire que aussi, voilà, leurs revenus vont diminuer ou ils n'auront plus de revenus pour nourrir leur famille. Ils se réveillent le matin jusqu'à présent, ils vont au niveau de, de ces endroits où ils ont été déguerpis. Et là, on voit que même la distanciation sociale ne, ne peut pas être respectée. Pour dire que c'est difficile et c'est assez grave. On s'est rendu compte qu'actuellement, ces travailleurs ne sont pas aussi bien protégés tels qu'ils devraient être. Déjà, ils viennent sur le terrain et ils n'ont pas les moyens aussi d'avoir tout le kit nécessaire pour l'hygiène. Mais les, les marchands, les travailleurs aussi ne sont pas restés les bras croisés. Ils ont essayé de prendre aussi des, des initiatives. Ils ont été au niveau, certains ont été au niveau de la, de la presse, parler de leur situation pour alerter les, les autorités. Certains sont en train de prendre des mesures en, en interne pour 
appuyer leurs leur membres tels que le récupérateur Bokujom de, de Mbobos, qui déjà a créé un groupe WhatsApp qui est en train vraiment de s'élargir de plus en plus pour informer ses membres sur la situation, les conduites à tenir. Et beaucoup d'hommes a puisé même dans ses ressources, dans sa caisse qu'il qu a, pour acheter des, des kits d'hygiène et de santé et des gants, pour appuyer au moins les récupératrices et les récupérateurs les, les plus démunis. Et ils sont en train actuellement de faire une quête pour appuyer les, les plus pauvres. Ça déjà, les récupérateurs le, le font. Il y a le, le rassemblement des du secteur des marchands ambulants de Dakar, qu'on appelle la, la RASMAT aussi. Ils ont ouvert à travers les, les lignes un espace de, de collecte et demandent la contribution des, des citoyens et continuent à sensibiliser aussi leur population. D'autres sont conscients de la, de la situation et ont pris acte de déguerpissement et se préparent à, à négocier après COVID. C'est déjà sur ça que nous, nous sommes en train de discuter avec eux que l'après-Covid ne soit pas néfaste, ne soit pas pour eux des, des moments où ils vont enregistrer des, des pertes, déjà perdre leur espace de travail. Parce que aussi, ce qu'on craint, c'est que, voilà, que les autorités profitent de, de cette situation de, de la pandémie pour faire déguerpir les travailleurs qui occupaient l'espace public ou bien pour faire déguerpir un travailleuse ou travailleur de manière définitive. Parce qu'en temps normal, ils ne pouvaient pas. Ça, les mesures ont toujours tardé. Ils n'avaient pas cette possibilité parce que aussi c'était difficile de les faire réagir. Mais voilà, il ne faut pas que cette situation favorise ces décisions qui vont impacter sur les conditions de vie et les conditions de travail des marchands ambulants, des vendeuses de marché. Des, des restauratrices, des, des lingères aussi. Ils verront leurs moyens de subsistance vraiment tomber à l'eau. Déjà avec la, les fermetures de marché, avec les déguerpissements qu'il y a, leurs moyens de subsistance sont en train vraiment de, de tomber en miettes. Et si maintenant, après le Covid, l'État décide de, de, leur, de les interdire d'occuper l'espace public, c'est un problème. C'est véritablement un, un problème. Mais il ne faudrait pas que, après le confinement, après que la situation normale revienne, que les travailleuses et les travailleurs perdent leur espace et n'arrivent pas à joindre leur, les, bou les bouts. Heureusement qu'ils en sont, sont conscients. Et nous, on pense que l'État irait vers ce sens pour libérer les espaces publics qu'il a toujours voulu libérer et qu'il n'a pas pu. Donc, il faudrait qu'on s'engage dans, vraiment dans une négociation avec euh, les autorités, les travailleurs et aussi les organisations qui appuient les travailleurs euh, qui sont là. Je pense que ça, c'est important. Maintenant, les demandes des, de ces travailleuses et des travailleurs. Voilà, l'État n'a pas encore euh, réagi, sauf que voilà, maintenant, lors du, de la dernière rencontre qu'on avait avec... Euh, la présidente du Haut, dialogue, du, du Haut Conseil du dialogue social. Elle disait que la difficulté qu'il y avait, c'est que les travailleurs informels ne sont pas formalisés et il est difficile de les identifier. Ils ont fait une cartographie. Et dans, la, dans le dernier discours du présent, 
il a entendu le président s'est prononcé pour aussi s'intéresser à l'appui aux, aux travailleurs informels. Et nous, nous sommes en train de discuter avec le Haut Conseil du dialogue social sur des, des propositions qui sont là. Mais individuellement, les marchands, les travailleurs informels, rares sont ceux qui viennent vers... Ils n'ont pas encore reçu de dons de, de l'État, même en termes d'hygiène et d'équipe, ils n'ont pas encore reçu. Et qu'ils se mobilisent eux-mêmes pour en, en trouver. Mais bon, globalement, sur ce, voilà la situation où nous en sommes. Merci beaucoup, Adama. Thank you very much, Adama Sumare, talking to us about the situation in Dakar, Senegal. I will summarize what he just said. The government has taken very tough measures from the start, but it is only a partial lockdown. Gatherings are prohibited, informal workers are really in a vulnerable situation. Street vendors are being removed from the streets. They used to work and now uh, are working in areas where there is no possibility of respecting physical distancing from others and they are without adequate protective equipment. There is no government support, so workers are mobilizing themselves either advocating through media petitions, but also creating self-reliance initiatives, creating WhatsApp groups to share information uh, and creating funds to support their comrades who are in need. Now, Adama is currently uh, supporting workers' advocacy efforts for the post-pandemic period, as vendors fear to lose pace uh, and work conditions in the future that they had before the outbreak. In particular, they write to use public space to sell their goods. As for the current demands, the authorities have not addressed any of them so far, but workers have been establishing dialogue with national governments, uh, but nothing concrete has come yet out of the round tables. And if you want to learn more about how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting the lives of informed workers in the cities, we will leave links at the description of the episodes to the Wigo's Focal Cities project page of, as well as to Wigo's page on COVID-19. This was the second episode of the mini-series of three episodes on the COVID-19 global pandemic and social protection for informal workers. So if you liked our show, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Teacher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the rest of the series. And please make sure to follow Wigo on social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook, so you stay updated on the latest news and publication about how the crisis is affecting informal workers, what are the workers' demands and actions, what are the government's responses, the policy debates, and much more. I am Sirius Afshar, and this was the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection, COVID-19 Crisis Edition. Take care, and see you next month.